you'll indulge me for a moment, there was a uh, famous, and he truly was famous, uh, famous philosopher in the 19th century named Ludwig Feuerbach. I don't expect you to remember the name, but I mean, you may have heard it before. He really was famous. He was a bit of a cultural superstar. And he very famously mounted an argument that he thought was a knockdown, drag-out argument against the existence of God. He claimed that Judaism and Christianity uh, make the remarkable claim that God has made humans in God's image. But, Feuerbach said, in fact, the reverse is true, that humans have made God in their image. We take a version of ourselves, an image of ourselves, what we ourselves already are, what we want, what we want ourselves to be, and we project that image into the heavens. God becomes a big version of who we ourselves already are, which is why, if you think about it, God tends to be always in our tribe, doesn't he? He's on our side. God hates the same people we hate, which is why God's enemies tend to be our enemies too. Feuerbach's great argument is that really, when most people use the word God, what they mean is a genie. They want a God who will grant their wishes. God is what we wish for. God is a word to describe what we ourselves want to be true. You can understand why it's such a famous argument and why it's quite a persuasive one. It feels like reality, doesn't it? After all, what most people use, what people, most people understand when they use the word God, is what they themselves already are. So God ends up looking an awful lot like the people who worship God. We don't have to go that far back in history, do we? to find examples of this. Just think, for instance, about what's been going on in the United States for centuries now. White people, people who call themselves Christians and see no conflict between the faith they profess, the churches they attend, and depraved practices like slavery, lynching, segregation, or voting for Donald Trump. Take Christians in Germany who saw no conflict between the faith that they profess and the churches they attend and their support for Hitler's National Socialist Party. One of the most horrifying images, it seems to me, you can find these days is images of the Lord's table with draped on either side of it, large red banners with swastikas. Or take Christians in this country who saw no conflict between the faith they profess and the churches they, uh, they attend, and practices like dispossession and the attempted extermination of the First Nations of this land. Why didn't they? Why don't they see conflict between the faith they profess and the churches they attend and the most astonishing examples of immorality? Why don't they see racism, racist violence, slavery, anti-Semitism, genocide as wrong? Well, fundamentally, because they see God as being on their side. They see God as being like them. 
In other words, they see God as being white. There's a word for this, and it's an ugly word, and it's called idolatry. And at the heart of the idea of idolatry is the unshakable, the rock-solid conviction that we and God have the same enemies, that God hates the same people that we do, and therefore we are justified in our hatred. There's an irony. I, I realize it's kind of strange to begin something on Sunday morning with a nice long explanation of a great argument against God by a very famous philosopher. But there is a real irony here. This critique, this argument against God's existence that Ludwig Feuerbach put forward over 200 years ago is in fact a kind of a pale version. It's a late argument that was already mounted by the Hebrew prophets millennia ago. No atheist, it seems to me, has ever mounted a critique of the dangers and the depravity of idolatry more devastating than the prophet Isaiah, or Micah, or Jonah, or Jeremiah, or Hosea, or Job, for that matter, or Ruth. Each one of these prophets raged against the tendency of people to make God after their own image. In other words, to make God tame, to make God safe to turn God into a genie. Each of these prophets reminded their people, where was it that you first met God? It was in the wilderness. There is no taming this God that we first met in the wilderness. There's something wild about this God. There's something untamable about this God. You can't put this God on a tether. You can't house train this God. You can't turn this God into a genie who does your bidding, who attacks your enemies. Each one of these prophets insisted on the wildness of God, the God who never ceases to surprise us. I don't know if you noticed, but in as soon as you read through the prophets Hosea and Micah and Joel and Jonah, there's a line that keeps showing up again and again and again at the end of the prophet's prayers, at the ends of the prophet's laments. There's this line that keeps showing up. Next time you read one of these prophets, just take note of it. It goes like this. Who knows what God will do? Who knows what God will do? That's a statement of the wildness, the untamability of this God. All this reminds me, probably won't surprise you, of a truly wonderful moment in the first of C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles. The Pevensey children who have just made their way to the land of Narnia hear about the great king of Narnia, a king named Aslan. And as they're beginning to get very excited about meeting this king, Mr. Beaver explains something kind of shocking to them. Aslan, of course, Mr. Beaver says, is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel very nervous if I were meeting a lion. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And this, I think, is the message of the prophets in a nutshell. Who said anything about safe? Who said anything about tame? What is idolatry in the end but the desire to make God tame? 
to make God safe. And that's why the prophets, each one, fundamentally confront us with the wildness of God. And so they ask, one by one, are you prepared? Do you have the courage to live with the wildness of this God? Are you prepared to discover the way that Jonah did, that this God is prepared to extend the hand of friendship, of forgiveness to the very people that we thought were our enemies? Are you prepared to discover, like Isaiah did, like Micah did, like Hosea did, that the things that we were prepared to give to God, the things that we were willing to offer to God, aren't in fact the things that God wants from us at all? Are you prepared, each one of the prophets asked, to be called back to the beginning, to be brought back to where we first met God? Are you prepared to have your image of what this God is like broken again and again and again, and this image of God remade in the most surprising of ways? Are you prepared, the prophets asked, to be surprised by the wildness of God? It shouldn't surprise any of us that Jesus read these prophets deeply. There is only one passage in all of the Gospels that the Gospel writers have Jesus quoting twice, and that's Hosea 6.6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus read the prophets deeply. He meditated and prayed on them deeply. And it's no wonder that so much of what Jesus does is precisely what the prophets did. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them. And Matthew got up and followed him. But that's not where the real surprise is. Here's the surprise. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. It's so easy for us to misunderstand what's going on here. As we read these passages, we kind of think Jesus hanging out with people that were a bit out of flavor. We hear the words tax collectors and sinners, and we tend to think of people who were greedy and extortionary and people who maybe just weren't perfect. And it means that the real contrast when we read this story is between self-righteousness and a kind of base humility. But in fact, when we hear the terms tax collectors and sinners, we ought to think of something very, very different. Do you remember when Jesus comes into the temple and he throws out the money changers? Why on earth were there money changers in the temple in the first place? What was it that was printed on the coins that circulated throughout the Roman Empire? It was, of course, the image of Caesar. Roman money was basically idolatrous money. It was unclean money. And those who traded in it were themselves constantly unclean. So before you can go into the temple, before you can purchase your temple sacrifices, you need to exchange dirty money for clean money. Tax collectors are those who are perpetually outside of fellowship with God. They consort, they trade in idolatry. They're those, of course, who have been, who have been dragooned into assistance of the Romans 
to trade in this money, to gather the money, to deliver the money to the Romans. Sinners aren't just people, as we read in the Gospels, who have done stuff wrong. Sinners instead are those people who, by their practices, have excluded themselves from the worshiping life of the people of God. These are the people who cannot approach the temple. These are the people who don't make the worship of God and sacrifice to God and forgiveness part of their practice. Tax collectors and sinners are those who live outside of fellowship with God. Tax collectors and sinners are unclean, corrupting presences within the nation of Israel. It's no wonder then that for 200 years before Jesus, every one of the great Jewish leaders and scribes and teachers predicted and foretold that God would renew, God would deliver his people from their enemies once all of the corrupting influences of the nation were gone. Once the nation was cleaned out of tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors and sinners are God's enemies. They have no share in God's demand for cleanness and holiness. The best way of approaching, the best way of dealing with tax collectors and sinners is by not coming anywhere near them. Why? Because they are corrupting presences. They're the opposite of yeast. They corrupt and defile the whole batch. So for Jesus to be singling out tax collectors and sinners and not ostracizing them, but planting himself right in the middle of them and eating with them could hardly be more surprising. And again, it's not just that Jesus has a meal with some unsavory people. If you've ever enjoyed a Middle Eastern meal, you'll understand just what intimate affairs meals are. You don't have knives and forks. You don't even have plates. You have common bowls, common cups, common bread. Everybody is putting their hands in the same batch of food. Everybody is sharing from the same pot, from the same bread, from the same cups, from the same bowls. There's nothing more horrifying then than the prospect of eating with those who are contaminated, who are corrupting. For Jesus to plant himself in the middle of those who are regarded as corrupted, corrupting, unclean, and sharing with them could hardly be more surprising. Again, it's no wonder that the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, those who have been saying for centuries that God wants to remove all these corrupting influences from God's people, will be scandalized by this. Why does your teacher, they ask, eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus then says something startling about healing. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That I think we can accept quite easily. That has the force of reason behind it. It's not the sick who need a doctor. It's, the, it's, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. But then you come to realize just what it is that's going on here. Why is it that in Matthew's gospel, this account of Jesus calling out Matthew and Jesus engaging in 
table fellowship, in meals, with tax collectors and sinners, why is it that this happens right in the middle of a series of other events, like Jesus touching and healing a paralytic, Jesus touching and healing a hemorrhaging woman, Jesus touching and reviving a dead girl, Jesus touching and healing two blind men, Jesus touching and healing a mute demoniac. One of the things that runs through the Old Testament is God's command, you shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. And holiness means steering away from those corrupting, unholy presences, not touching those things that are unclean, that are defiled. For Jesus to understand holiness as a form of healing, the presence of God as something that when it comes in contact with that which is corrupt, that which is unclean, isn't defiled by it, but instead heals. For Jesus to understand God's presence among sinners, not as something that's under threat, but as something that restores, that revives, that heals, that brings into fellowship, that brings into a common family, is something radical. It's something truly surprising. And there's a name for this holiness that heals. There is a name for this holiness that isn't defiled by contact with what is unholy, but restores, revives, restores to fellowship. And the word for holiness that heals is mercy. The word for holiness that heals, holiness that is unafraid of contact with others, holiness that is unafraid of one's enemies, holiness that is unafraid of contamination is mercy. And that's why in Luke 6, 36, Jesus turns around this command that has been enshrined in the book of Leviticus. You shall be holy for the Lord your God is holy. Jesus turns it on his head. You shall be merciful just as your father in heaven is merciful. I think it's easy for us who play around with this idea of God as a great genie to sit with miracles as examples of supernatural power. But in the end, what are these miracles? What are these moments of healing but expressions of the wild mercy of God? We thought we had God pegged. We thought we had God contained. What is holiness but an attempt to contain God? But instead of being contained, God keeps breaking out. The very people that we thought were on the outside, God invites in. The very people we thought were locked out, God restores. The very people that we thought were enemies, that were excluded from our common life, God brings in and sits at the common table. This, it seems to me, is the challenge for every one of us. Do we have the courage to follow this God, to imitate and embody 
God's generosity, God's kindness, God's costly giving and hospitality? Do we have the courage to follow this God even among those that we would name as enemies and find among them people God has claimed as friends? Are we prepared to get up and follow this wild, merciful God? Or would we prefer the safety of a tame God, a God who only wants what we are already prepared to give, a God who hates the same people that we hate? Are we prepared to get up and follow the true God, or are we prepared only to worship a God of our own making? Most of us would prefer, would prefer the safe God, the tame God, the God that wants what we are already prepared to sacrifice. Most of us would prefer, would prefer a God who does what we only expect that God to do. That's fine. But we just need to be prepared, be prepared also to realize that that God, who is the safe God, who is the tame God, is also a God of our own making. Go and learn, Jesus says, what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Is he quite safe? No. Who said anything about safe? But he's good.